We're going to move now in this new sermon series from the topic of habits to the topic of love. Because I was looking at the calendar, I'm like, what's the next thing? And culturally, the next thing is love. I mean, love should always be a thing, right? But we're going to talk about it. And I want to admit to you, confess to you this morning right now, that I kind of did this on purpose a little bit. Because I know that that the... The love season, I, I, by the way, I call everything from February through March the love season, uh, because usually we get inundated. If you go like at a Walmart or someplace, it's just like, uh, I was going to say uh, rainbows and unicorns. That's not true. It's like, uh, it could be, but it's like uh, hearts and candies and, you know, flowers, and the world is blooming before our eyes. Um, we're coming into the spring season, which is awesome. But the funny thing for me is I got married on March 19th, so it's always a season of love in the spring for me. You know, I'm reminded. I get some warnings uh, that this is coming. And so this really is a time of year that I think about those things automatically anyway. But here's my confession. I kind of wanted to trick you all a little bit and jump into it now because for some folks, this is a painful season. For some folks, you've, you've set out in your life and you want to love others and be loved. That's a normal part of our human experience. As a matter of fact, the most uh, abnormal or unusual thing would be complete isolation. And I would say, and I'm just going to say this, I think as a culture, we have kind of tried to isolate ourselves like in really severe ways we share a little bit about that maybe with how um and i'm not picking on social media it's awesome but it sometimes creates a false relationship and not a real three-dimensional relationship (laughs) you know like people in your business people in your life the thing that you actually desire but also many of us terrifies us I recognize, though, we come in the season and we paint these perfect pictures of love and what love looks like, and then it can be really painful for some people. They're like, that's not what I know, that's not what I experienced, or maybe that's what I want and I don't have, or I don't think I have it in the way I want it. And so I wanted to share that with you as kind of like, why jump into this now? I'm going to ask that if this is a season that you love, that you love this season of love and you're excited about it, then you just kind of go, this is going to be fun right? I I can't wait to hear about these things. But I'm going to ask that this is a painful or difficult thing for you, that you just commit to stick through the series, that you would believe something radical, that God has something to teach us about love that we do not already know or understand, and that you would be open to God, and I would be open to God changing my idea of what love actually is, right? Let's let's let him define for us what it looks like to love one another or to be loved or what we're after when we're seeking out that kind of love. And so that's kind of the intention. It is a little kind of sneaky to jump in early, but I really wanted to do that. Why would I want to do this? A couple of things I want to tell you about. I've been at Family Bible for 12 years, something like that, 13. I can't remember. I'm losing count. (laughs) You guys are too. You're like, really? Are you still here? Yeah, I get it. (laughs) By far. Without doubt, the most controversial sermon series I ever preached here was eight weeks on 1 Corinthians 13, and it was a series called More Like Love. I tell you what's funny. When we just did 1 Corinthians, I ran past that, and everybody goes, whoa, 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 whoa. That was a love chapter, man. But I did that because I felt like we had talked about it before, but I want to say to you, in no uncertain terms, and I think, well, what in the world? Like, who could get angry about love? Or who has hurts about love? Who would want to talk about love? But there's something, and we see this over and over in Scripture once we see it, that there's something that we're automatically kind of afraid of or protective of. And I'm just telling you in no uncertain terms that that was by far the most controversial sermon series I've ever preached to spend eight weeks talking about love. 
And there's a couple reasons for that. For those of you who, who like, you know, been here a while like me, you remember, we were doing communion every week. And people started going, why are we doing communion every week? And people go, this is awesome. People go, this is terrible. And we were just doing it for the series. It was just a conviction. Why are we focusing on love? You know, my love is not, that's not how it is for everybody. And there was anger and hurt. And you're right. I remember one time I was at another church and we were having a, a weekend uh, marriage kind of retreat. Eh, it was like a seminar, one of those webinars, uh, what do you call that, a live stream of marriage things. And, and I was promoting it because I was excited about it. And I went to the church. I'm like, man, this is going to be awesome. We're so excited. If you're married, if you think about being married, if you ever want to be married, come to this thing. It's going to be great. Tell you like how to love each other well and stuff. And, and, and I left that service, you know, and I'm like, and we had worship and the pastor preached and everything was great. And I turned around and some lady stopped me in the aisle of a church and just dressed me down, pointed her finger in my chest and like poked me. It was like almost a fist fight in the sanctuary. You don't know what I've been through. You think life's so perfect. You think this is what it's, and I was like, I'm sorry. But I got to know her really well after that. I really did. I didn't take that for granted. You know, I, I kept saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that's not your experience. I'm sorry that people haven't loved you that way. I'm sorry that you've wanted things in your life that haven't come to pass. I'm sorry that whatever it is. And, let's, and you know what? She became like a, a spiritual partner in my life. Like we did tons of mission trips together after that. And, we, and she was the one egging me on. Like, what are you being so lazy for? Let's go do a mission trip. I'm like, who are you? The lady was poking me in the chest. Because she wants to know that I'm included too. Don't leave me out of this love story. Come on, church. That's why we need to be told again one more thing. This is another reason. It's on my heart. Um, I was counseling somebody. I was sitting with them, and we were talking. And they're like, you know what? I'm in a bad relationship. It's toxic. It's unhealthy. I got, I got kids. But man, my kids, and, and it's abusive. And I'm just telling you this. I'm not tell, telling any tales out. You know, this is, and, and um, she's like, whenever we, before we had kids, it was fine. But now he's, he's hitting me in front of the kids, and I'm afraid the kids are next, and I'm going to leave. Will you help me? And I was like, yeah, yes, let's help you. So I started calling around, trying to find resources for people who are in abusive situations. And, and by the way, if you ever try to do that for a friend, it's not an easy thing to find. We got our friends that are running Eden's Glory now for sex traffic people. We got, we got our, some friends in Alton that run a women's shelter. But it's really hard. And, 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 and in, it, let alone for, for men who are trying to find their way. I mean, it's just a hard thing to find safe places for people to kind of heal and, and be protected. And so I thought, well, this is gospel work, man. We're going to help this. We're, yes, yes, we're going to do this. <clears throat> and then like a week goes by, I'm like, hey, what's the deal? A week goes by, hey, I'll come by and I'll talk to you about it. And, and, and I'm like, so hey, I got these contacts. Here's some numbers you can call. Here's some resources for you. And, and, and this person who I care deeply about says, um, I'm not leaving. I'm like, what? I, I'm not leaving. He promises a change this time. And by the way, can I just say I'm not bagging on men here because this could be anyone in a relationship with abusive. It could be a man or a woman because we're people. And this is the words that came out of her mouth. Next words. I said, why? And she said, because he loves me. And, and the next words shaped <laughs> that series in my life in so many ways. And I said, and this is for me too, church, so I'm not talking about, like, as if I'm a perfect lover. I'm not a perfect, I'm not a perfect person in love, but this is what I have to be corrected for, because I said this, that's not what love looks like. That's not what it looks like. But in her mind, this is the definition. My experience is the definition. And therefore, when you talk about these things, it's very painful. No, this is what I know. And, and we talked about this. Why, how did that become your definition of love? Well, I, I grew up in a household that was violent. That's the way mom, dad treated mom or mom treated dad. or That's the, what I saw around my neighborhood. So the whole point to that is to say this really, really 
it's worth talking about, I think, for a few weeks. We're in about three, four weeks in that, and then we're going to uh, move on to whatever God has for us next. So actually, I think, what, how do you structure a series on love, and what could be a, a what, what would change, what would, what would open some things up for us? And then this, there's a song that came to mind. Now, I'll have to go with me here. This song. You may have heard it before, some of you may not have heard it before, but check this out. L is for the way you look at me. Huh? Nat King Cole. I'll tell you what, in three, I'm going to be sick of this, because I've heard it so many times already. I started listening to this song, and I was praying, and I'm like, why is this song, what does this song got to do with love? Now, I know some of y'all are like, first of all, did you know that was Nat King Cole, not Frank Sinatra? <laughs> so you guys are like, yeah, I know that. I didn't know. I was like, what? Nat King Cole, that's cool. Um, and this song kept repeating, repeating, repeating. And I was like, what does this mean? And so actually, that's kind of where we're taking the, the look. Because here's a funny thing about music. I have this kind of theory. A friend of mine says, you know, man, I become a believer in Christ. And now when I listen to the radio, I hear the gospel everywhere. I hear it in heavy metal. I hear it in rock and roll. I hear it in country. I hear it everywhere. And I'm like, right? Isn't that crazy? There's this interesting theory that if you took any love song, it's a popular love song of any generation, and you replace the one being loved with God or the one loving with God, it becomes a worship song. <laughs> it becomes something that we actually understand. But what we, we often do as a culture is we make it about us and not about this ultimate love that God has bestowed upon us that we are not worthy of, that we don't deserve, and he just gives us his favor. And so almost every love song is a worship song or every worship song is a love song. We have these recognitions of patterns in our lives. Um, by the way, side note on that, have you ever tried to write a worship song? Maybe some of you are writers. I would challenge you to maybe write a worship song. We've been praying about this as a, as a uh, worship team, and it's really fascinating how difficult it is to write a song that's biblically accurate and honoring to God. Um, and so, anyway, that's the deal. So that's the setup for it. We're going to pray and get into the, today's uh, message, and we're going to see how this goes. So pray with me if you would. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for a chance to be gathered together. And now, Lord, to talk about your love, this love that we need to know. The, your word says you are love, not that you love, but you are the actual thing, love, the, the, this, what we're, we pursue what we desire, and then yet we know we're coming into a season of love, which can be full of hurt and hardship and joy and excitement, and um, it can get us to get off the couch and, and do life. It can get us to a lot of things, Lord, but would you teach us, would you reshape, reform perhaps our own view of love? Would you define it for us? We're going to ask that you would do what only you can do, which is that you would teach us through the power of your Holy Spirit. Your word says if we ask for wisdom, you'll give it, and that you are pleased to teach your children about your truth, to make all things known. So, Lord, this morning we ask you to do that. Um, I ask you for um, special grace uh, with my words and, and, and um, anyone who's hearing these words, that, that it would be received as a gift from you and that this, isn't, that this is intended to be a, a blessing. May we receive it in such a way. You be glorified. We'll be your people. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so we get into this idea of having this replacement theory, what love looks like. And I want to start with a couple of scriptures this morning um, to kind of get our mind thinking about maybe what we, what we came off of with habits and what we're going into with love and maybe some connectors here for us. 
And so uh, I want to look first uh, at a biblical model of this um, idea of replacement things. And I, now, so we talked about this last week, and ever since we talked about it, I'm seeing them everywhere in Scripture now, like everywhere. Everything's don't do this, do that. Um, stop doing this and start doing that. And, uh, and so here's one that I love, right? This is actually my baptism verse. I was baptized under these words, and praise God for that. Uh, do not conform to the pattern of this world. That's the stop, right? Stop that. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so we have this idea that when we come to know Christ, we should no longer be doing the old way of things, that things have changed for us, right? And so he's like, don't be conformed to the pattern of the world. So how does this tie in with us? Well, there's most of what we're going to see right now in this next month of our lives is going to be the patterns of the world for love, what it looks like for the world, how they define love, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds that we would be open and be shaped instead by God's definitions, by God's words, and, and allow him to speak truth into our lives. That's what we're after here, not for our own purposes, but for his purposes. Actually, um, more fully... Oh, I did. That's so funny. I marked it on 2, 12, Romans 12, uh, 1 says this, right before this verse says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the view of God's, what, mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, because this is your spiritual act of worship. This is how we worship, is by offering our bodies as living sacrifices to him. And we're urged to do that because of his mercy for his people. And then it says this, because of mercy, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then the final part of verse two says this, then you will be able to test and approve what is God's will. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So this idea that by stopping thinking like the world and start thinking the way God is transforming us to think, we then begin to um, be invited into new uh, relationship opportunities. That's what I was thinking. New ways to look at the world, new ways to engage with those around us. We'll be able to test and prove what God's will is for our life. Right? And so all these things are, are tied together. We're going to unpack this very practically um, as we go through the series. But that's kind of a starting point for it, is Romans 12, 1 and 2. I would encourage you maybe even to memorize those verses um, in your life. Just think about them often. And, and really, any scriptures, begin to kind of um, in, in integrate it into your life. <clears throat> Here's another one. Um, this is from Ephesians 4, uh, 22 through 24. I'm going to turn there myself. Ephesians 4, uh, 22 to 24. <clears throat> You were taught with regard to your old way of life to put off your old self. This is probably the most explicit off and on, stop and start text. You were taught, according to your old way of life, uh, to put off your old way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its, look at the word says, deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on your new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So here's, again, the call to stop one thing and start doing another thing, right? So we're called to stop this old, corrupted way of thinking that pursues our own selfish desires, right? It's about us being satisfied in some way, and instead put on this new self that pursues this, um, that, pers that is created to be like God and pursues true righteousness and holiness. And so it's this, this for that. By the way, this is 
probably the key verse for almost all of Christian counseling. As you come in, you're like, hey, I want to talk to someone about counseling and problems I have. And it's like, okay, so let's stop this and start this, right? Stop this and start that. And, and those stopping and starting things are biblical principles, not just something we made up out of our whole cloth to help ourselves along, right? But instead, stop this broken thinking. Why do you think that? Well, let's don't think that way anymore. And let's think about what, and here's the substitute. Here's the spoiler. Stop thinking about your experiences and everything you've gone through and start thinking about what God says about you or who you are. Begin to let God speak into your life. And I can tell you, I understand, it's hard to hear that voice for the first time because we've heard voices around us our whole lives that have influenced us. But stop listening to the world and start listening to God. This is the transformative discipleship relationship. This is the thing that changes everything. Put off the old self Put on a new self. Be intentional about walking in this new way. There was a gospel coalition. I love the gospel coalition, by the way. There was a gospel coalition article this week that said this, and I I was stunned, so I I captured these words. Um, There are six words that undermine discipleship. This is just who I am. It's just who I am. There's this idea, and it's one of these things that I've been thinking a lot about. One One of the lies the culture gives us is you're stuck with things as they are. Too bad. You just, bad roll of dice, bad luck. It's just who I am. And that, that precludes us from being obedient to God's call in our life. If we, have, if we can say to God who made us, sorry, God, it's just who I am, we don't have to change. We don't have to be transformed. We don't have to be um, molded or shaped by God's uh, gospel, by the truth of Jesus Christ. But if we're truly his, if he truly knows us, we can say, well, yeah, you know who I am, but you know who you're calling me to be. Lord, help me be better than this. Help me change. Help me be transformed. Oh, Lord, these are prayers, right? Shape my thinking. The old self is corrupt. I sense it, that pursuit of the things I've always pursued. But instead, Lord, help me to focus on you. Transform my mind. We ask God for these things. Um, Jesus himself, he, uh, he gives this uh, great command in scripture. Uh, he's asked, I'm sorry, what the greatest commandments are by someone that's kind of testing him. And he says two things. You know what they are, right? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. I think that's what it says, because in the Old Testament, I think it says, and with all your strength. One of those is left out in the New Testament. But he says, love the God with everything you have. And secondly, what's he say? Love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> Love your neighbor as yourself. And he says this. These are the two greatest commandments, and they, they, they encapsulate everything else that was taught, all the other teaching in Scripture. Now, at the risk of, of, of being a bit dull, I, wanna, I have to ask a practical discipleship question. How do we love other people as ourselves if we don't love ourselves? I say that's a dangerous question because it becomes, it can become self, you know, like self-focused. Like, uh, I got to love myself first. I'm loving, you know, hear this kind of language in the culture. Love yourself first. You gotta, but what I think there's some important kind of under thing here that you have to know how loved you are to love anybody. Jesus came um, to demonstrate God's greatest gift of love. That he would give himself that we could be free. That he would die on the cross for our sin that we could know him intimately, that he would put his Holy Spirit in us and that he would call us to be transformed in our thinking, to be changed. So uh, Jesus uh, lays us out. Love your neighbor as yourself. How can, we, how can we use this? 
How can we unlock this a little bit for ourselves? Do you ever find yourself getting short with people? Or do you ever find yourself kind of pushing back on things? You're like, wow, where'd that come from? I didn't know that was in me. Like it surprised you that it came out. I think in some way we can think back to this and go, I just treated that person that way. Where's my heart at? Where am I at right now? What am I, what am I thinking about the world? See, that's loving our neighbor as ourselves. Treat others. What's the word say? As you would have them to treat you. How are you treating others in your life? That might reveal much about what we believe about ourselves. How can you love someone else if you don't love yourself? Or here's a harder question. How can you allow someone to love you if you don't believe you're worthy of love? Because here's the problem. Some of us have been conditioned to believe we are not lovable, and that's a lie. The word refutes it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God desires that all should come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. He wants everyone. The truth is that the gospel confronts this lie of the culture head on. Some are loved, some are unlovable. Some are favored, some are unfavorable. These These aren't true things. And we have to let God speak. We have to begin to let God speak to heal us. Here, here's some um, real-life stuff we can talk about. Uh, I mentioned social media. Again, I'm not mad at it. But how much of social media is comparative? Oh, look at their car. Look at their house. Look at their vacation. Look at their life. And then that creates something in us. Or, or, or it used to be celebrity culture. Look at the celebrities. Um, uh, look at how, how they live. Look at how perfect they are. Or, or here's an even older school you know, mechanism than social media and celebrity culture um, is uh, magazines. <laughs> Look at that magazine cover. Do, do you remember our culture has become so savvy about how much we're manipulating each other and manipulating our own images to try to look better than other people. I remember how much of a revelation it was that we found that they were airbrushing the covers on the models of magazines. <laughs> now people do it on their own profile pictures. Hashtag no filter. What is that about? That's because we've begun to know that the life is almost always false. It's almost always fake. It's almost always polished over in some way. It's not fair. But here's the problem. Even though we know it, even though we recognize it, it's not the truth, we still compare this little sliver of someone else's life to our entire life that's usually a mess. Okay? So, so you look at this little thing and you're like, oh, look at how perfect it is over there. But you're seeing this little bitty moment, little window. And then you look inside and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to be like that. But that's a lie. Because that little sliver is attached to a whole other person. And this is what we have when people fail in crazy ways. You're seeing this little sliver and you're going, oh, they're so... And then all of a sudden their whole big ugly life comes in. And you're like, that was in there? Yeah, that was in there. Just like you, just like me. Our whole selves, we use the unfair comparison in our own lives to see if we measure up. And then, here's the big lie, they're lovable, but I'm not. They got more likes than I did. They have more friends than I do. They have more status than I do. And by the way, let's talk about status for a minute. It used to be status was a local thing. Like the biggest problem we had was who was the coolest kid in town. But now the problem we have is who's the coolest kid in the world? And you've got to compete with everyone else on the planet. Because with the internet, there's no excuse anymore. Look at that guy. You think you're a big deal? Look at this other guy, this other girl. You know what I'm saying? It used to be you could be like, well, I'm not that guy, but I'm not that guy. You know, you could find your spot in your little town or whatever, right? That's not true anymore. We have this global comparison network, and I think it's pressing in on us in so many ways. 
You may have heard the story. This is a famous one, but I'll tell it briefly. There's this idea that how much, how much effect training of our minds has on us, the old, broken, corrupted way of thinking. Um, Highland used to have, they don't even have these things anymore, I don't think, but they used to have a circus come to town. And back in the day, they had a circus come to town, and they would have the elephant put the tent up. And you've heard the story before, probably, right? But they would have these great big elephants that were bigger than cars. They would haul them in, and they would use the elephants to build the circus, and then the elephants are in a circus, which is why you can't have circuses anymore, because elephants can't be in circuses, nor can bears on balls, but that's just the way things are these days. There's a great bear ball story. But anyway, so one day someone said, how do you get that big animal to obey you? How do you get it to stay and not run away? It's a wild animal. And they said, easy. When it's small, you tie it to a stake that it can't pull out. And their whole lives, they tug and tug and tug and tug, and they can't pull out. And so they get to thinking, I can't pull that stake out no matter how hard I try. And then as they grow into a full-grown elephant, they stop trying. They don't pull the stake. That's how they do it. That's why the elephant listens. It doesn't know who it is. That's a great story about elephants, Bill. Fantastic. I will put that away. I've heard it before. Some of you probably heard it before, right? That's an old story. But it was true because people would say, how do you get this big animal to obey you? That's how you break the animal's spirit when it's young. Oh, come on. That's unfair, isn't it? I couldn't do it then, so I can't do it now. <clears throat> Let me tell you a personal story. I was in my garage as a teenager trying to buff up for the ladies, as many of us do when we're teenagers. I don't know if anybody else tried that. I tried it for a brief period of my life. <laughs> and, uh, but I was out there, and, I was, and I, I was working out with a friend of mine. I said, hey, come over and let's work out. And by the way, none of you have invited me to work out with you yet, so I'm just putting that out there again. Okay, so I was out in the garage, and, I was, and we were lift weight, and then we had a mirror. We had a mirror in the garage. But I, you know, because what, okay, if a couple of, boys get together and they're working out. Here's what you do. You work out, get a little sweaty, and you go over the mirror and you flex. While the other guy works out, you know, or you hold the bar, right, whatever that is, right? But, but you, because no one's going to choke like 15 pounds on a bar. <laughs> but, uh, but I was working out and my, and my friend's like, put on more weight. I'm like, I can't handle more weight. He goes, yeah, you can. You can handle more weight than that. And I was like, what? And so he puts more weight on like that. And he goes, who do you think you are? And I kid you, this, this is a crazy thing, because I was only like maybe 15, 14, 15 years old or whatever, maybe 16, I can't remember, but he stood me in front of a mirror just like this, and he said, look at the mirror and tell me what you see. And he was like right over my shoulder here. And I said, uh, I see a four foot, 10 inch pound, a four foot, 10 inch, four foot, 10 inch tall, 98 pound weakling. He said, look again, what do you see? I said, four, 10, 98 pounds. He goes, how tall am I? I'm like, 6'4". He goes, look at, again, what do you see? And I was like, I'm almost as tall as you. Do, do I look 98 pounds to you? No. Why do you believe that about yourself? And I had to go, what? Why do I believe that about myself? Because it was something in my life that had happened at a point in my life that I identified with. And I'm not telling you that as like some poor pity. I'm not telling you that for that reason. That's what I'm telling you. As God is my witness, when I looked in that mirror, I did not see what my friends saw. I saw something else. I couldn't see it rightly. It was right in front of me. And it took a friend of mine saying, look again, what do you see? I needed a friend to help. So let's fast forward a, a few decades. I sat with people and they start to tell me about their lives. And they start to say things about themselves that aren't true. And I'm like, what? How, how do you think that that's true? Well, I just know this how it is. It's just how I am. And I'm like, you don't see yourself rightly. I'm not talking about a friend, a person. I'm talking about person after person after person that I've sat with. And I'm like, you don't even know who you are, do you? You don't even know 
how awesome you are. And I'm not saying that as like some motivational speaker. These are people who are so much better at me than me at the things that they do. And I'm like, for real, I was talking to a friend of mine and I'm like, I was just like, you don't even see yourself rightly. And, and, and I just got this conviction that this is part of our mission as the people of God, to help each other see themselves rightly. Look in the mirror. What do you see? Jesus said, though, love your neighbor the way you love yourself. And you look in the mirror and you're, you're disgusted. Ugh. What does that say? I'm not trying to get us to go stare in the mirrors all the time. But isn't it an interesting thing that so many of us are stuck in some, we got some mental block. We got some non-transformed part. And that's just, that was just a friend, let alone the God who made us. I want to take a moment this morning. I want to speak some biblical truths to you. If, you. if you never hear anything else, I want you to hear the things that God says about you. Not about somebody else, not about that adorable baby, not about that Facebook profile, not about that person over there who's succeeding in life, but about you. Here's one thing the Bible says. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. There's something in your created nature, the way God made you, that's made you unique and awesome and beautiful and worthy. And I know some of you are like, I don't know if I can believe that. That's because someone's beat that out of you. You've been inculcated into the lie. Do you want to be loved? You've you got to act a certain way. You want to be loved? You've got to be a certain way. No, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. God knows you full well. Here's another one, and I love this. You are not an accident. If I hear one more person who's walking around breathing on this planet telling me they're an accident, well, I'm just going to say you're not an accident. But you know what I'm saying, right? You've got to say it emphatically. You are not an accident. The scripture says this, you were knit together in your mother's womb. It's not an accident. It's very intentional. Known intimately. Listen, we live in a culture where birth is a choice. So at the very base level, you have to say, someone decided to go ahead. My parents didn't plan for me. Whatever. You're here. They're like, yes, let's do this. Listen, that's no accident. You are knit together. I am stunned by the fact. I was listening to somebody the other day talking about DNA and the wonders of DNA, how DNA is so amazing and all this stuff. And, and I have got the image again in my mind of DNA. And isn't it wild how it looks like this strand, these connected pieces? Like the scripture was saying for a very long time. Someone made the case the other day. said, the moment of conception, all the DNA is unique. Everything in there is unique. And that's you. All the potential, hair color, eye color, fingers, abilities, disabilities, everything about the way God made you is intentional. It's not an accident. We get into designer kids, right? We're going we're gonna to make them better. Really? Have you been around someone who's differently abled? Come on. You think you're more human than that? You're not. They're fearfully and wonderfully made. You, you get down on your knees and you, you look in the eyes of a child and you say, yes, yes, you're so precious. No problem with that. But you get down on your knees in front of an elderly person in a wheelchair and say, yes, yes, you're so precious. When things aren't going well, when life stinks, that's what the Bible says about you, that God knit you together in your mother's womb. Here's something else the Bible says about you. You are more valuable than many sparrows. <laughs> Why is that? That's a silly Bible thing, isn't it? But you know what? This is what Jesus said. Not one sparrow falls out of the sky, and some of you are responsible for that, without God knowing about it. But you are worth more than many sparrows. What? Here's another thing that Jesus said. 
you're more valuable than a lost sheep. I had never seen that before. I was reading the Bible today, and it says, there's a shepherd who lost a sheep, and he went to find it, and he spent all day, and he left the 99 behind because this one sheep mattered so much, and whenever he found the sheep, he was glad, and he says this, and Jesus says, a punchline, and you're more valuable than a sheep. We had a situation where our dumb dog ran away. Dumb dog. You know what I'm saying? You open the door and you let him go out to go to the potty in the yard. Don't leave. And then these little knuckleheads have their own minds. They're like, I'm out of here. Make a break for it. Our dog is four pounds, five pounds soaking wet. He ran away. We spend an hour walking around the neighborhood. Our dog is deaf, by the way. So the only person that you're, you know, calling is your neighbors. <laughs> Trying to not be embarrassed. RJ, RJ, you can't hear me anyway. Where are you, you stupid dog? You're walking in your neighbor's yard trespassing because he doesn't know boundaries. That's what Jesus would say then. Do you know that kind of love you have for that dog? You would, you would drive around your car. You put up the posters. You would look. You would stay awake at night. Oh, where's my dog? Where's my dog? Listen to me. You're more valuable than any dog. You're more valuable than any puppy. That's the story Jesus tells. Here's something else. You're God's workmanship, created for good works. He knit you together. He formed you. He caused his life experience to happen because he has predestined you for good things, to be part of his story. Here's something else. We sang that song, uh, He is Jealous for Me. That's really interesting. Um, you are valuable to God so much that he's patiently waiting for you. That's what the scriptures say. God patiently waits for us to come. He patiently waits for us to turn. He patiently waits for us to acknowledge why? Not because he has to, because he loves us. He, here's another one. These are all from, right from Scripture, by the way. You are precious. You are honored, and you are loved. And that's said in the Old Testament, that God cares so deeply for his people that they are loved, honored, and precious to who? Him. See, I didn't always believe these things. Many times, you know, I was, was where you are. I, I actually came in as a complete skeptic to this whole gospel thing. And some things stick with you. And I wanted to, I wanted to share a story with you this morning that stuck with me. And I, I couldn't, this is, by the way, this is a little the footnote from my own life. Like, I couldn't remember what the pastor actually preached about, but I remember the story he told. He told this story. He said, there was a girl who was being raised by her grandmother. And, and, and her grandmother loved her, but there was one problem that this little girl, as she grew up, is the house had no mirrors. By the way, if you've ever heard the story, I don't know where it came from. I heard it from a pastor. And I tried to look it up. I Googled, uh, and I couldn't find anything. There's a book, and told me, it's not it. Like, but her whole life, this was her experience. She would wake up in the morning, she would come down the stairs, and her grandma would turn and look at her and say, good morning, beautiful. And then she would go about her day. And year after year, it goes on. And then there comes a day where there's a suitor at the door, that there's someone there who wants to have interest in her. And he's coming. And, and she comes down, and she's like, Grandma, Grandma, I'm going to meet this guy. And, you know, how do I look? And Grandma looks deep into her eyes and says, uh, You look beautiful. And in a holy moment, the door opens. And guess what? This young man says, Wow, you're the most beautiful person I've ever seen. Like, what? Is that true? Can we shape the way others think of themselves? How much it grieves me that people have spent their whole lives hearing something else besides you're beautiful, you're wonderfully made. God caused his image to dwell in you. I know it can get a little sappy and sentimental, right? It's just a, a sappy, sentimental thing, but, but, but that's always stuck with me. 
What would it be like to be raised in a house where you couldn't self-examine and you had to depend on people around you to tell you how you look or who you are or what your qualities are? So with that in mind, I want to turn now into, so it's like, it's like how do we see ourselves? I want to say one more thing and we're going to get into the scriptural tools. But for me to think, because that first line says, um, for the way you look at me, that takes a whole lot of presumption. For me to believe I know how you look at me, right? And now you're saying, well, you're overthinking it. Yeah, probably. But we do that a whole lot, right? What does the other person think of me? So I'm going to give you some biblical tools now. They'll help us kind of maybe unpack this in our life. Um, these are all uh, straight from Scripture. I'm going to put them up on the screen. The first is um, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, we know this verse, and lean not on your own understanding. And in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. He'll make your paths straight, right? And what's funny about this verse when it came to mind for me was, I've always heard it that way, like, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean, and lean not on your own understanding, and in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. I've read those around, but what stood out to me this time is, and lean not on your own understanding. And I think for most of my life, I read that verse and I just skipped that part. How many of us are still saying that? Yeah, I just, I, I know, I just don't get it. I don't understand. See, that's our understanding. I, I know the Bible says that God loves me, but I just don't understand it. That's leaning on our understanding. He says, no, trust in Yahweh with all of your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. And instead, here's the replacement. Do you see the replacement again? And instead, in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Trust in the Lord. What an opportunity. How many of us need to do that more? Lord, I, I don't get it, but I trust you. I, I, I don't get it, but I'm going to follow you. I'm going to acknowledge you in my life. Or here's another one. This is from uh, 2 Corinthians. I just need to get there. Uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 10, 4 and 5. Paul writing to the church says this. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. We talked about this just the other week. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. I was stunned to realize that the stronghold is actually a military term. It's a place where the enemy has set up a fortress, right? And so we, ha we don't fight with a fleshly Weapons, we fight with spiritual uh, tools that have divine power to demolish, not to knock on the door and ask permission to come in, but to remove strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up, up against the knowledge of God, and we take, here's the word, captive every thought, and we make that thought obedient to Christ. And, and when I read that verse, what I think it means is, what I hear it to say is, that whenever other messages are coming into us, we remember what Christ said, we take that thought captive and we're like, does that align with who God says I am or who I am called to be? And when those things don't line up, we don't throw out God, we throw out the thought. It doesn't line up. It's not true. It's a lie. We take the thoughts captive. We don't just willy-nilly let them float through our head. Why do I believe that about myself? We talked about this a little bit in the habit series. Why, why am I thinking this way? Why am I reacting this way? Because the spiritual war is a spiritual war that destroys the strongholds of the enemy. And I'm convinced that many of us have these little dark parts of our lives that Satan is still hanging out, having a good time, and thinking he's safe from the gospel. Let me just say something to you. He's not safe from the gospel there. 
take the thoughts captive. Compare them to what God says about you and then choose to believe God and not the liar. This is powerful, powerful stuff. The Spirit of God fights on our behalf. Here's another from Hebrews. So we've got taking thoughts captive. This is from uh, Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And it goes on to say, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him who, to whom we must give account. So like the word of God. So I've said a couple of things. Take every thought captive compared to what it says of Christ. But how do we do that? The word of God. And it gets, and here's the thing, and this is why many of you don't want to read the Bible, and I get it, is it gets in those dark little crevices of your life and it digs stuff out. It gets the gunk out of there. It makes you think differently. It causes us to question the things that we've always assumed to be true. I love that it says it separates soul from spirit. You're like, what does that mean? It's the, the, um, the, the, the uh, CK from the pneuma, right? The, the way we identify ourselves from where our breathing. It's separating those things out. It's bringing a, a point of clarity. And if you don't think that that's intimate separation, of course, the comparison there is bones and marrow, it judges the thoughts, listen, and the attitudes. The scriptures judge the attitude of our heart. What do we believe about ourselves? What do we choose to believe about ourselves? And by the way, let me just say this as a side. What you choose to believe about yourself is a choice. You're choosing to believe it. You're choosing to believe God or the enemy. You're choosing to believe what he said is true or you're believing what other people have said is true. Here's another. This is from 2 Timothy. I love this. Uh, 2 Timothy 1.7 says this. The spirit God give, gave us does not make us timid, right? But here's the three things. It gives us power and love and self-discipline. So not only, do we have, not only do we have what God has said, we can compare our, capture our thoughts, but not only do we have the scripture that helps us to think rightly, but we also have the spirit of God that he gave us that gives us the spirit of power, that's dunamis, ability, the, of love, and of self-discipline, that we are actually able to change. We are actually um, uh, have a spirit of change in us to be transformed. He doesn't give us the commands to do these things and not empower us to do them. How do we do this? Two more verses. First, I love First John. Man, if you read First John, spend some time reading that book. It's, it's so dense. It's so packed with things to think about. But here's a couple things. First John says this. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That if we confess that we have, have got it wrong, that we, if we confess the sin that we know and we understand that we've come to realize, if we just say that, and that's why I encouraged you earlier, like, God, you know who I am. You know the things I've done, right? If you confess your sin, what? God is faithful and just. At that point, it's up to him. God, what are you going to do? Condemn me? Tell me I'm unworthy? Tell me I'm unlovable? Or are you going to forgive me and love me and show me? And what does the word say? He will purify us from all unrighteousness. He makes us clean. But how does that happen? Because we confess. We don't pretend. We don't try to show the sliver to God. No, that this, oh, this is a mess. 
God, I need you. I've sinned. I've screwed up. I've been screwed up. I've responded in screwed up ways to the screwed up things I've gone through. And in the middle of all that, God brings righteousness and peace and holiness. There's a great passage of scripture that says, if you, though you're evil, know how to good, give good gifts, how much more the Heavenly Father. Isn't that funny? We think we're better than God. If my kid asked me, I'd be super nice about it. I can't go to God. How will he respond? You think you're better than God? No, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us from all unrighteousness, setting us free. And then there's one final verse in John. There's a bunch in John, but this is the final one I want to share with you this morning is this. I love this, man. And if our hearts condemn us, <laughs> I just want to stop right there for a minute. He says, if our hearts condemn us, he already told us, if you confess your sins, you're free. He's forgiven you. And then two chapters later, he says, by the way, if your hearts still condemn you, if there's some part of your heart that's still going, nah, you think you're forgiven by God, but I know who you are. This is what the word says. We know that God is greater than our hearts. Come on. He's greater than these internal understandings. And he knows everything. Like, like, you think there's parts of your life and your heart that God doesn't know. No, he's in there. He knows what's going on. You confess it and you pursue him. You look to him to lead your life. And all of a sudden, your path straighten out. Is it instant? No, it's this transformative experience of following God, right? This is his good idea. But I know some of you, your heart still condemn you. Listen, I know there's some ways in my life my heart still condemns me. I preach the gospel at time, and there's still those times where I'm like, yeah, but there's that thing. And the word says that God is greater than our hearts. He's greater. Yeah, Bill, you don't know my life. You don't know what I've got. I don't, I know, I don't know, but I don't have to know because I know God knows. I know he's in there. I know he's in here. And I know he is patiently waiting for you just to believe Believe the one who made you. Believe those around you who are saying, He's, you're worthy. He's there. So here's a question. When you look in the mirror, how do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as worthy of love? Or here's another question. When you get into a crowd, this is interesting. How do you think others see you? What's that process? You're putting thoughts into their looks, their glances, their eyes, their comments their attitudes, you're presuming to know. Here's the last question. Whether you're looking in the mirror or you're in the room and you're wondering what they're thinking, do you let God speak in that moment? Do you just let God tell you who you are when you get really unsure? Pray with me if you would. Oh, Father God, I thank you so much for the truth of your gospel that kicks down the door of our hearts, that just lets light in. I thank you so much for friends who dared to share with someone who felt so far from God that God loves me, that God loves me. And Father, may we be the people reminding others that God loves them, that we've gotten this love thing wrong. And Lord, I want to confess that myself. I need to know what love looks like. Just so many times in my life, I get it wrong. Oh, Father, would you teach us what true love looks like? Um, Lord, for all the ways that we sin and screw up and all the ways we fit and start, at the end of the day, I just pray that we would have an a, a overwhelming Holy Spirit conviction that you speak with great authority over us more than any other voice. 
And Father, I pray that our souls, our spirits would be attuned to your word, that you would, we would let you speak in those moments of hardship or doubt or, or, or anything else, Father, not just all the times of our life of great joy that you would be speaking your love to us. May we recognize you as the perfect um, lover of our soul, as the one who's making a straight path for us. Be glorified, Father. Um, I pray, lastly, for anyone who's listening today that's just been through it, Lord, would you just continue to heal and lead and, and guide and direct, Father? Would you continue to challenge us to think differently as we have so easily taken on the thinking of the world in all these ways? Help us to, help it to be redeemed. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.